Because we understand our fearful responsibility to the Lord, we work hard to persuade others. God knows we are sincere, and I hope you know this too. Are we committing ourselves to you again? No, we are giving you a reason to be proud of us so you can answer those who brag about having a spectacular ministry rather than having a sincere heart. If it seems we are crazy, it is to bring glory to God. And if we are right, if we are in our right minds, it is for your benefit. Either way, Christ's love controls us. Since we believe that Christ died for all, we also believe that we have all died to our old life. He died for everyone so that those who receive his new life will no longer live for themselves. Instead, they will live for Christ, who died and was raised for them. Amen. Amen. You can go ahead and be seated. Thanks. So if you haven't yet, go ahead and take your Bibles and turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 11. And the question I have for you this morning is, what motivates you? What motivates you? If you went and asked somebody that knew you real well, you, you probably need a humble sp uh, spirit because they might tell you something that you wouldn't necessarily agree with, right? <laughs> but all things motivate us. We're all motivated by things because what motivates you drives you. What motivates you causes you to have resolve. It moves you to action. It's what, what motivates us that drives us to complete something. Motivation determines behavior. I remember my dad, one of the things that my dad loved to do was go fishing. Him and I went fishing many, many times. My dad was a fly fisherman, too. We fished a lot of beaver ponds, and I loved going fly fishing. But there were a lot of times where my dad would determine that there was a fishing hole somewhere up in some place, you know. And I can remember we'd pull up in the truck, and my dad would open up the truck, and he'd start just putting, you know, here, this gear, we'd have to have our little fishing basket, and then he, there's the fishing box, and then there's the pole, and there would be all this stuff, because we couldn't come back. We'd have our lunches, because when my dad went to a fishing hole, my dad did not leave a fishing hole. He would work an area all day long. So everything we had to carry, and I can remember he would load me up, and then we'd start hiking, and it seemed like it'd be forever. And ever, when we'd be hiking up this mountain and, you know, it felt like a mountain. I was like 10 years old. I can remember this one particular time. I was like 10 years old and we hiked up and we hiked down into the valley and this, went down this creek. And I'm like, here's a fishing spot. No, this isn't the spot. And, you know, we kept on going. We get to this, finally get to the spot. Man, I didn't want to fish. I was tired, right? But my dad's whole motivation was those fish that were in that spot because that was the best spot. He was moved by his motivation. I find it interesting. When we're hungry, what do we do? We go to the fridge, right? We go look in the cabinet. We know where the stack cabinet is. If you're motivated by achievement, you have a tendency to work hard, right? If you're, if you're motivated by not much, you're probably not going to do much because we're moved by our motivation, right? And those kinds of things. In fact, if we're moved by, by greed, what are you going to go after? Money. If you're, if you're moved by power... You're going to be motivated to get in a position of power. What motivates us drives us. And when we were made new, we were motivated by Christ towards Christ. And this is the reality of 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and what we've been looking at. It's the reality of the gospel and how it changes us. And as we're made new, it motivates us in a different way. You see the Apostle Paul who wrote this section, who wrote this letter. And also Paul went from doing what? From killing Christians to what? Living for Jesus. He went from trying to stomp out the name of Jesus to promoting the name of Jesus. 
Everything changed for him. And the reality is, and the reality of this passage that we've been looking at, is that the gospel radically transforms us. And one of the things it does is it changes our motivations. It makes us new, and it gives us new motivations. In fact, really, that's the big idea of today's message, is that when we're made new, it leads to new motivations. And what are some of those motivations that we, that we see or that we have? It's here, in the, it's here in the text this morning, if you will. Let's look at 2 Corinthians chapter 5. And I just want to read verse 11. Those first few words are pretty powerful. It says, therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. I just want to stop there for a second. The word therefore, I always say, you got to stop and look for. Why, was it, why is it there? Remember last week, if we looked in verse 10, the previous passage, it talks about the judgment seat of Christ. Do you remember that? And the judgment seat of Christ, we go, well, wait a second. I thought, you know, we're already saved. Why are we going to the judgment seat of Christ? Because there in that passage, it's not a judgment unto salvation. We're determining salvation. It's a judgment about how we give an account, where it's an account we're giving of how we conducted our lives with the things that God gave us. God has blessed every one of us in this room. One of the blessings this week that we get to see is we see our founding pastor go to another country and he's taking the things that God has blessed him with to go use it for the gospel. He's motivated because he's motivated by teaching the word and he has a heart and a passion to train national pastors. And so it moves him to do that. So when we talk about giving an account for our lives, we look at our motivation and we realize, well, gee, what am I doing with the things that God has given me, with the gifts he's given me, with the resources he's given me? What are those things that I'm doing? Because we're going to have to give an account for that with what I've done. And right here, it's kind of like right here in this spot. This is where the wise person kind of goes, okay, what's external or eternal? What's, what's temporal? What are the things I'm investing in that, that investing in is eternal? What are the things I'm investing in that are temporal? We have one of these things today that happened this morning, right in front of us, that is in eternal, right? Where a, a mother comes and dedicates her son. I was so moved by that. And the reason, one of the reasons I was moved because my mom did the same for me. She was growing in her faith and she didn't know much. But she prayed for me and she dedicated me. And man, God has impacted my life greatly because of my mother and what she has done. What is eternal? What is temporal? We begin to start thinking about those things when we recognize that, that there's things that were going on and we're going to have to give a light, uh, an account in light of, this, of the gospel or the judgment seat of Christ. So Paul is saying, therefore, in light of verse 10, it should result in a fear of the Lord. We're going to talk about fear. I, if you remember, uh, a while, not too long ago, last fall, I went through a series on the wisdom literature, and there was one message where I spent time about what is the fear of the Lord, and we're going to look at that here for, in a minute. But he says, therefore, knowing. I love this idea because there's things that we do know and understand, and therefore, if we know this is true, that we're going to give an account for how we conduct ourselves in our lives, then how does it impact us? So Paul's really saying here, so knowing that I'm going to give an account for how I'm living before the Lord, I appreciate the fact that I have an understanding of what God is going to do, and there's a, there's a sense of a fear of the Lord. I appreciate that. So it motivates me 
to persuade others. And that's kind of the, the nature in which he's going through here. In fact, if you think about this chapter, this, this section, the things that we've talked about, we've talked about that, hey, this tent is temporal. And we've talked about how the, we see different. We walk by faith. We walk not by sight. We see different. And today, we're really talking about what is our motivations? What drives you, dear people of God? Not just here on the Sunday morning when we all come in and in agreement, we agree about the things of God. But what drives you on Monday? What drives you on Tuesday? What drives you on Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday? God is the same. He's eternal and he's ever-present. What drives you in those times? You see, when, we, when we're made new in Christ, everything changes. It's a transformation. Our motivations become different. In fact, that idea, the idea of the fear of the Lord here uh, <clears throat> has the idea not of being a terrible fright of God, but it's a reverence, a reverential awe towards God. It's a picture of understanding who he is and really who we are. It's an understanding that God is all-knowing. It's an understanding of knowing the glory of God and the character of God and the person of God, that he's holy. He doesn't change from moment to moment like we do. He's not like us in that way. He is a just God, ever-present, one who is a creator, who made all things, the one who will accomplish that which he has said he will accomplish. And that creates within us a reverence and an awe in the person of who God is. It, it, drives, us, it drives us to, to worship. It drives us to, to stand back and to recognize who he is. And it draws us into a place where there is an awe and a reverence for him, a fear of him because of who he is. Have you ever been in a in the presence of somebody that you just, you, you just really like hold really high on the pedestal. Um, I, there's not a lot of people that I put on a real high pedestal. I always kind of figure, hey, we're all the same. We all kind of, we're, we're all going to end up in the, in the ground the same. We're all born this, pretty much the same. I mean, you, you, we all just try to make it through this world, right? Well, I had the privilege a few years back uh, to go over to Dallas Theological for one of their studies, and there was a guy that, got to meet that he's really high on my pedestal. His name's Haddon Robinson. He was a guy that when I was sitting in church as a high school, well, just out of high school, I heard him preach and it changed everything about my life. And I got to be able to walk up to this man and tell him what he meant to me personally, spiritually. And man, I just, I had such a respect for the man because he took time to come to that church that time and to open God's word and to tell us what God had put on his heart without fear. He just preached God's word and it so moved me and God used it in such a powerful way. And I was so appreciative of his heart and of his, of his service to the Lord. I just had such a respect for him. And I stood there and when I stood there, he was kind of up on a stage and, and, the, and he was, I mean, he was, gosh, in his 80s probably then, huh, Greg? And he bends down to talk to me. Man, he, it just, it just, I just had such a respect, a reverence for him, if you will. And it's the same picture that when you begin to understand who your God is, and there's going to be a day that I'm going to stand before him, it creates 
a reverence, a respect, a fear for who he is. Do you have a fear of God? See, Paul understood this. He understood that he was going to have a give an account for God to, before his God, and he was filled with reverence, and, and it fueled him. It motivated him for how he lived. He understood Proverbs chapter 9, verse 10, that the, beginning of, that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. To fear the Lord, it brings clarity in our life. When I understand who God is and I have a proper understanding of who he is and who I am, it brings clarity into my life. It brings purpose into my life. It helps me to begin to whittle through all of the garbage that's going on in our world. Amen? It, bring, it, it takes the chaos and it, and it kind of settles it because there's one to whom I bend a knee to. It brings clarity. It brings certainty. It establishes my faith. It establishes where I don't run in fear, but I rest in a God who is everlasting. It establishes me in who I am. It provides clarity. I love that idea. It provides clarity. And if you remove the fear of the Lord, then you remove clarity. You remove wisdom. You remove purpose. You remove true and pure worship. I mean, after all, if the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, what's the opposite of wisdom? And if you remove wisdom... What do you have? I mean, if you remove fear of the Lord, what do you have? You don't have wisdom. You have foolishness. It is so important in our lives, dear people of God. In a day when we talk so much about kind of pulling ourselves up by our bootstraps, that the, the, the essence of life is being true and that we find, we find who we are in ourselves. And when we talk about all of that, we, we kind of rebel against the aspect of that there's somebody that we submit ourselves to and we recognize. But dear people of God, the church needs a clear understanding of, who, of the fear of the Lord in their lives. You need a clear, and I think uh, John Murray had a quote, I think I have it up here on a slide. John Murray said, the highest reaches of sanctification are only realized in the fear of the Lord. And in fact, when I thought about this, you, you start realizing that there's kind of a, there's a ceiling on your spiritual growth if you don't have this fear of the Lord. You can only grow so far. One of the realities for me in my life and my walk with God is when I begin to understand and, and in, embrace the fact of the sovereignty of God in my life was when I really began to grow spiritually. And it's true for the church. If a church does not have a fear of the Lord, there's a cap, there's a ceiling on how far we can grow, how much we will do for God. Because all of a sudden, if we're not having an understanding of who God is, if we're not to have a reverence for God and who he is, we're not going to grow very much. We're not going to accomplish. Oh, we can be very busy and do a lot of good things and pat ourselves on the back. But when we actually have an understanding of the fear of the Lord in our lives, it's when we can grow spiritually and accomplish the things of God in our lives, those things that only God can do through us. It doesn't sound good, does it? Because we have to give up. And Jesus came not to set us free to live as we will. He came that we would not live for ourselves anymore, but that we would live for him. Notice in verse 11, 
He says, therefore, knowing, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. It moves us. It motivates us to do something. It motivates us to persuade others. The fear of the Lord causes us to share the love of Christ. It causes us to share the gospel. It causes us to impact others. It's when we remove the fear of the Lord that we don't. And often the reason we don't is because we become afraid of others, of their thoughts, of their ideas, of their, their issues. Oh, I'm not like that. And we begin to determine. You see, you're going to either one, you're either going to fear the Lord or you're going to fear somebody else. Think about that. In fact, I have a slide up here. I was trying to think through this. and You can kind of seek to please God and persuade others where you will seek to please others and persuade God. It's going to be one or the other. Leave that up there, though, for a minute. It's going to be one or the other. You're either going to fear God and have a proper understanding of who he is and the reality of who God is in your life. And as a result of that, it's going to motivate you. It's going to drive you. That's why Paul had to be the person he was. That's why Paul constantly was going and preaching the gospel, going to new areas, new places, and preaching the gospel because he was persuaded that those things were true. And who God was and the reality of that, and it moved him, it motivated him to, to persuade others. So if we're not persuading others, if we're not doing those things, well, why not? Probably because we're afraid of others. And if we're afraid of others, if we're seeking to please others, then we have to start persuading God. You know, God, I don't think that's what that says in your word. You know, God, culture's kind of redefining you I kind of agree. You know, God, that doesn't really fit my style. You know, God, I, I, I don't know that I can believe that. You know, God, I don't think that's right. You got to start persuading God. And if you, start, if you start pursuing to please others, you know what happens to you spiritually? You become ineffective. You become ineffective. Is there a reason the church in America is as weak as it's ever been? Is there a reason? Is there a reason? Well, maybe we as a church need to look. Do we fear God? Do we have a reverence for who God is? Do we have a reverence for the person of God, the, the character of God, the qualities of God, the God that we serve? I don't walk in here because I, God's just a good idea. I believe in the realities of the person of God and who he is. And that moves me in my faith. That moves me in my actions. It moves me in the way that I preach. It would be much easier to come in here and tell you all, hey, everything's lovey and rosy and everything's fine, right? Y'all are doing a wonderful job. And, you, and God may be doing wonderful things in your life and praise God to God be the glory. But dear people of God, if we're not doing the things of God, we need to stop and ask the reality of are we pleasing others or are we pleasing God? What are we motiv motivated by? The whole point here is to fear the Lord, to have a reverence for him. The word of God is clear. I mean, it is clear, the word of God. That we're to serve him, we're to trust him, we're to fear him. He is to be the one that we listen to. And I don't care if the culture changes. I don't care if the culture tries to redefine him. I choose God. 
I think he's been very clear in his word. I think he's been very clear in the things that he has said. In fact, in Galatians chapter 1, verse 10, Paul talking here to the Galatians, he said, For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? He's asking that. Am I motivated by men or am I motivated by God? He says, where am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. You see the reality here? The reality is you're either serving God, you're fearing God, you're pleasing God, or you're not. A servant, that's why you hear me say, we are servants. We're servants. We serve God. Am I going to serve God? Am I going to fear him? You see, when we are made new, our whole motivation has changed. There's a fear of the Lord, but there's also a love of Christ. Look what, what he says. In fact, he goes down in verse 14, and I'm going to pick it up there. In verse 14, he says, For the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. We are motivated by the love of Christ. You know what? The gospel is love. When you, look at, when you look at this chapter, it's just shouting the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's just shouting the gospel. Because the gospel is all about love, isn't it? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Amen? That God loved us that he sent his son. And, and that when you are made new, when you receive Christ in your life and you're made new, you are so saturated with the love of God. Isn't that a great picture? Just saturated with the love of God. Because the gospel is all about his love. No wonder Paul says the love of Christ controls us. In fact, this word has really two basic ideas or two different meanings, or not different, same kind of ideas within the word. The first is it constrains us. In fact, you may even see that in some of the translations. They would use the word constrains. It's the idea that it protects us. And the idea is that the gospel, when you receive Christ into your life, the gospel begins to redirect your life. It begins to redirect the way you think and the things that you do. And as a result, it really saves you. It saves you from the destruction of iniquity, the destruction of sin. It causes you to see what God is doing in this world and to avoid the adversary who wants to devour you. It constrains us, it controls us, it guides us, it redirects us. In other words, it's really literally the idea that the, that the love of Jesus fills our lives and it protects us from the evils of our own iniquity. The, Lord, the love of God started something in us and he's planning to finish it. I get encouraged thinking about that. That God has started something in us motivated by his love and he's gonna finish it. The second idea of the word is also, it means to idea of it compels us. In fact, some of your translations uses that word, compel. It means it creates an urgency. There's an urgency that the love of Christ brings an urgency or a compulsion to do something with the love that we have. The love of God kind of throws us towards fruitfulness. It throws us towards action. It's a picture whereby the love of God, not only does it come in and it, and it, and it keeps us, but it doesn't just keep us in where we do nothing. It keeps us where it actually literally kind of catapults us into the world. That we would send us forth. 
that we would share with others the love of Christ. You see, when the love of Christ controls us, it, it protects us, and we make decisions for righteousness, that we would walk after God, but it also moves us that the love of God is so saturated in us, it motivates us and it moves us to share the love that God has given us to others. I mean, it's the love of God that moves us. I mean, when I think about it, think about it. When I think about it, why do I, why do I get up and preach every week? I, I, it's, it's the love of God. I don't, I, I'm serious about that. Some of you, I mean, I've been, in fact, one of the things you'll see in this, we don't have time to go through it, but there was so much opposition towards Paul. People were uh, saying, oh, you're just commending yourself, Paul. They were challenging his integrity. They were challenging his motives. They were saying, you're crazy, you're out of your mind. The others, Paul says, hey, whether they say I'm crazy or I'm out of my mind or not, I do it for God and I do it for you. And they were challenging his motives. Why do we do the things that we do? Why do we have people that serve in their children's ministry? Because of the love of Christ. And man, right now, as we're coming back, we need help in that area. We're looking at VBS. We're still not sure we're going to have enough to have all the children we would like to have for VBS. Well, why do we do those things? Because of the love of Christ. Whether it's our greeting team on Sunday morning or we're someone teaching a Sunday school, why do they do that? It's the love of Christ because the love of Christ constrains them and compels them. It moves them. It motivates them. Why do we build intentional relationships with our neighbors our co-workers, and others that we meet in order to share the gospel with them. It's the love of Christ. And Paul says the love of Christ controls us, it moves us, it motivates us so that God's love comes in and it, and it, and it moves us in such a way that we, that we impact others. Our motivation becomes that we must, we must love Christ and be Christ to others. It compels us. So not only are we motivated by the fear of God as we're made new, but we're also motivated by the love of Christ. We're also motivated by a new ambition. You see it in the last part of verse 14 and 15. He says, uh, the love of Christ uh, controls us because we have concluded this. Look what he says. Paul, a lot of when Paul talks, the reason he says the things he says is based on, on truth. It's based on theology. Here he says, I concluded, I know, I understand this to be a reality. Look what he says. That one has died for all, therefore all have died. What a powerful statement. The source for all that Paul is talking about is the gospel. It's what fuels him. It's what motivates him. When Jesus died, we died with him. What, do you, what does that mean? What does that mean, we died with him? That it's like in Galatians chapter 2, verse 20. Our flesh has been crucified with him. Nevertheless, it's not I who live, but Christ who lives in me. The life that I now live, I live by what? By faith. So there's this picture that when Christ died, we identified in his death in that the old man has died and died with him. And we're going to look at it next week in verse 17. I'm really excited about next week too. It died. And what Paul is saying here is that he says that we've concluded that one has died, Jesus died, and therefore all have died. We've identified him. He goes into verse 15, and he died for all that those who live might. Look at that word, 
might. That there's this opportunity to live in, after Christ, that we might no longer live for ourselves, but for him who for their sakes died and was raised. The old self has been crucified. The penalty of sin has been removed. The, the presence of sin will be removed. We look forward to that day. Its days are numbered. The, 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 the presence of sin in this flesh, the days are numbered. We're looking for that day when Jesus would come. But now we live for Christ. Now we're free to live in Christ. Now we have the liberty to live in Christ. Now we are alive in Jesus. Amen, amen, amen. We are made new. This is the work of the gospel. This is what God did. That we don't live for ourselves, but that we live for him. If you say you are Christ and you belong to Christ, but you keep living for yourself, let me say this. Please hear me. And I, it's probably going to be offensive. I'm sorry. You don't get it. You don't get it. You don't get about this idea of main name. You don't get the idea of the gospel. That the gospel has set us free to live for Christ. It's given us liberty to live for Jesus. That we no longer be in the clutches of sin and death. That we would be made alive. That we would be made new in Jesus Christ. And if, and if we're going to live for ourselves, we don't get it. I mean, what do we do? Do we, do we really say, oh, Jesus, here's sin and death. You go take that, but I'm going to keep my life? Is that what we do? And that's what we kind of find ourselves. I remember many years ago when I was putting in sprinkler systems to get through college, I was riding in the back of this. Nowadays, if they wouldn't, if, if it's just not safe, but in those days, we did a lot of unsafe things, didn't know it was unsafe, right? So I'm sitting on a kind of a, big round deal of wire, and I'm sitting in the very back of the, and we loaded all the guys on the crew inside this van, we're going, well, there was a new guy that just started, and the guys got him going, and he was not talking very well. I'm, I'm very, um, I'm very, I, I, I think we just, you speak well of people, right? And this guy was not speaking well of women at all, and his use and the way that he was describing women was um, horrible. And the guys were getting him going. I was sitting in the back of the van, and they were saying things on purpose to kind of get him going because they knew I was sitting in the back. And we pulled up to the spot, and one of them finally said, hey, you should be careful what you say, Greg, back there. He's a Christian. And the guy got upset. He's like, what? I'm a Christian too. Well, you know, I'm like the most non-confrontational person in the world. You know, those that know me are laughing, right? I'm like, you know, the... The guy that's, you know, hey, I don't want to rock the boat kind of thing. And so I'll never forget as we're getting out. And I, and I just looked at him. I said, there has been nothing you have said in the last few minutes that reflect Jesus at all. I don't know why you would call yourself a Christ follower. And I walked away. And his mouth was on the deal. He was shocked that I would even say those things to him. And I felt like he got off lucky um, that day. But <laughs> we cannot fall into the lie that we are going to be followers of Jesus, but yet we're going to live our way. Dear people of God, did you hear me? And if you've been doing that, we got to stop. We just got to stop. We have to, we have to 
embrace the beauty and the glorious chapter that we've been studying of what the gospel has done for us that has set us free to live in Jesus. That we can walk in freedom. That we can walk after him. He died to set you free from sin and death that you might live for him. And everything in my flesh is going, no, no, no. I mean, you, the reality is, is, is true living is found in you, right? I mean, that's not everything that the, the world and the media, the internet is telling us is to seek what's best for you. There's been a lot of things God has asked me to do in my life that I didn't think were best for me until after I've walked out in obedience. And my flesh is sitting there going, no, no, don't, don't follow after that. Do your own thing. Live your own way. Be mad at that person because they're just scum. Hold that grudge. Never forgive. Speak ill of our brothers and sisters. They, they deserve it. My, my, how many times? How many times is this... Is the flesh screamed up at me to follow after my own fleshly desires. But the spirit of God that's in me, that made me new, says, yes, yes, live for Jesus. Yes, please God. Yes, serve him. Yes, yes, because you've been created for that. You've been created for more that is beyond yourself. You've been created for God. Seek after him. Follow after him. I love the last part of the phrase here in verse 15, and then we'll close. It says, but for him, Jesus, who for their us sake died and was raised. That word sake there literally means purpose or ambition. In other words, Jesus died and raised again with us as his purpose and ambition. That should humble us. When Jesus went to the cross, his purpose, his ambition was you and I. When he was raised from the grave, when he endured the, the criticism, when he, when he was beaten, when he was humiliated, when he faced death, he didn't have to, but he did. He did it as us being his ambition and his purpose. He made us his ambition. Just let that soak in. Doesn't it just humble you? He made us his purpose. He made us his ambition. Should we not make him our purpose? Should we not make him our ambition? Should we not? See, when you're made new, you're radically changed. You understand the temporalness of this tent. You understand that we walk by faith and not by sight. You understand you have new ambitions 
that you understand you have new motives. And those motives mean that you understand the fear of the Lord in your life. You understand the love of Christ in your life. And that you understand that you have an ambition now. And it's to serve him. To live for him. Let's pray. Father God, um, speak to us, your people. Father, in the iniquity that we find within our members, we so often want to control that which is around us. We find ourselves, Father, wanting to dictate how we live, what should be done, what shouldn't be done. And Father, to be honest with you, especially in our country, in our culture, we, we struggle to give up and to let go and to trust. And yet, Father, I know that the only way that we experience the blessedness of our walks with you is when we surrender ourselves and we yield ourselves and we submit ourselves to you, the sovereign king, and that we understand that you are the almighty God from everlasting to everlasting, the holy of holiest, that there is no other one to bow knee to. There is no one else to seek. There is no one else who is from everlasting to everlasting. There's no one else who speaks and the winds listen to. There's no one else who calls matter into creation. There's no one else who can breathe life into the nostrils of man. You alone, O oh God, are God. And Father, we are servants. We are your people. And we follow after you. Set us apart, God. Move within our hearts that we would be aware of who we are motivated by. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.